Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. joining us in this episode of Community Pharmacy Podcast, where we sit down with community pharmacy practitioners and leaders to discuss topics relevant to advancement of community-based pharmacy workforce, pharmacy business, practice, and our profession. My name is Gina Galanuluchin. I'm the director for the section of pharmacy educators and section of community pharmacy practitioners, and today I will serve as your host. We have the pleasure of hosting three incredible speakers with us today, Dr. Julian Shuli wall our Senior Director for Health and Regulatory Policy, Don Carroll, Associate Chief of Pharmacy Center for Connected Care at Cleveland Clinic, and Sandra Durley, Senior, Senior Associate Director of Inventory Pharmacies at UIC. And we will all be discussing CMS's recent ruling limiting DIR fees. So thank you all for being here today and for joining us. We'll just dive right in and start with our first question for today. And this one is mostly for my colleague, Julianne. So just to bring everyone up to speed for everyone listening, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services recently updated their final rules on Part D, specifically pertaining to DIR fees and some of the definitions. And so, Julianne, can you share with our audience just some key highlights of this change and what it entails? Sure. So... This has been a long time in the making. There have been a number of steps that kind of got us to this place, and it might be kind of helpful to situate us that way. So in 2019, one of the things that happened was there was a change to what had been proposed around the Office of the Inspector General's safe harbors for rebates. And so there was a plan to try to repeal the ability of plans to use rebates. And that was a way to kind of get a DIR. Unfortunately, that rule never went forward because there was a lot of entrenched concern and opposition around what it would cost the system as a whole. The estimates around costs were really um, all over the place, and it was anywhere from $100 million, which is not a whole lot in the Medicare context, up to a billion dollars. So it was a huge range of possible outcomes, and the concern was that there was a potential to see patient premiums spike up to 20%. And in the background of all of this, there had been a concerted push for a number of years to address retrospective direct and indirect remuneration. So those are the fees that pharmacies pay to plans and plan sponsors. And so this all culminated in a decision um, following a number of rulemaking procedures for CMS to move forward with actual action on DIR. So for a couple of years in advance of the 2022 rule, which is what we'll talk about today, there were steps that CMS was taking to collect information from the field about what DIR looked like in practice, how retroactive and retrospective fee-taking affected pharmacies and potentially patients as well, and then what stakeholders were looking for CMS to do. And in 2022, CMS finally decided they were going to go at this problem by directly addressing the DIR issue. And what they did was decide to target what is called negotiated price. And so that is the price at the point of sale that the pharmacy is going to be paid. And so previously, you would get one negotiated price at the point of sale. So that would be the price that the patient buying the prescription saw. But on the backside of things, you might be, as the pharmacy, seeing pieces of that clawed back in the form of fees. Some of the fees were related to quality metrics. Others were sort of these amorphous not very transparent fees that were assessed for any variety of reasons. And they were in the contractual language for plans, but 
that language is often hard to assess and it's also very hard to access in some cases. So what CMS did was they said, okay, fine, we're going to make this a lot clearer for everyone involved. And they said, plans from now on, there's going to be a new definition of negotiated price. And what negotiated price is going to mean from here on out is that the, the payment that is paid, the reimbursement at the pharmacy counter, the point of sale, that is the lowest possible price a pharmacy will receive for that drug. So any sort of fee or any sort of clawback has to be done upfront rather than retrospectively. And that was a really important step because the retrospective nature of things made it really hard for pharmacies to plan and to really determine what they were going to get paid. In some cases was ending with pharmacies underwater on certain medications. So there are just a lot of problems with the retrospective piece of this, but now that retrospective piece has been removed. So the question is, what is it going to look like moving forward with the negotiated price definition changing from what it had been previously? Thank you, Jolene. This is really helpful background. And I know ASHP has been a longtime advocate for eliminating DIR fees and helping promote more transparency for pharmacies and for our members. You touched on this as you were kind of sharing some of the history of the ruling, but this is not the first time that CMS has examined DIR fees, correct? Can you share some intent behind the price concessions to begin with and some earlier attempts at regulating the process? Yeah, so I think DIR is, as I said, it's been a long-standing issue. I've been in advocacy work in pharmacy for close to 10 years now, and this has been an issue ever since I stepped in the doors. And for people who have been in practice longer than I have, I'm sure it's the same, if not even worse, because the trend over time for the last couple of decades has been for an increase in DIR year over year. And what we're really seeing, this was in the Part D space, D as in dog. And so you were seeing it for outpatient pharmacies. And at first it was a small fraction of what outpatient pharmacies were we're seeing on their balance sheets. But moving forward, it was getting up to the point where sometimes it was 10 or 15% of cost. And so it was a way for plans to ensure that they had a revenue stream. I mean, I, I hate to be cynical about it, but at the end of the day, plans are running a business. And this was a way to kind of extract value from the system. And over time, I think plans got smart to the fact that they could say, well, we're going to pay you X dollars for this prescription. And then a quarter later say, oh, but we're also going to take a dollar back because you didn't meet this kind of amorphous quality metric that we may not have fully described to you. And also for this other metric that may or may not actually be related to the medication you dispense to the patient, but you're still going to be on the hook for because you were the last pharmacy to dispense to that patient. So it just snowballed over time. And so what we wanted to do is make sure that CMS took some sort of action because they had seemed like they had kind of gotten stuck in this endless pattern of asking for feedback from the field and then not feeling like they could take the next step and actually regulating around it. And I think part of that was because every time CMS tried to move forward with this, much like what happened with the OIG rule that I mentioned on rebates earlier, there were concerns about what it might mean for patient premiums. But at the end of the day, what CMS did in this rule should theoretically have an impact for patients that is positive on the whole. We don't know exactly what this is going to fully look like until it's implemented, which doesn't happen until 2023. But if the lowest possible price is the one at point of sale, then that is what is going to be key to a patient's out-of-pocket costs. So theoretically, patients might see reduced costs for some things. 
It also, as I said, makes it much easier for pharmacies to forecast what their revenue is going to look like. What it doesn't address, though, and I think one of the things that we are going to be watching really carefully is this quality metrics piece, because nothing in this prevents plans from continuing to use quality metrics to assess fees in a way that may not have much to do with quality and may have more to do with um, ensuring there is some padding to the plan's bottom lines. Right. A lot to think about, a lot of history here from the regulatory side and, and some of the information that Julian shared. But I wanted us to move kind of to the practice side from the leadership side, from you, Don and, and Sandra. So this has been an issue that pharmacies have been facing for a long time in the practical side, seeing the effects and the, the economic and financial strain. So can you share with us some challenges that your businesses have concerning DIR fees and what you've been seeing over time. Don, we'll start with you and then move to Sandra. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Well, DIR fees, it's incredibly opaque. You know, it's impossible to plan for or to estimate. And you think of one of us or our peers going in front of an executive team with a business plan, and then we're going to say, yeah, there's these takebacks we can't really estimate too well. We don't know what the rule sets are. And frankly, with the advice that we're given when they are taken back, we can barely track them back to any reality. It might be tied to a script number, but the amount may not be tied to a contractual term or anything else. You know, in plain language, it just become another method to extract revenue from community pharmacies. And I think the toll they have taken on their profession are profound. I look around my home state in Ohio and the DAR fees and other PBM practices have resulted in hundreds and hundreds of pharmacy closures across the state. You know, these people didn't suddenly forget how to operate a pharmacy. Frankly, they were just plain driven out of business. So this really has been a method which is close to unauditable to be able to extract more revenue out of the system. You know, our value propositions ultimately for anything we're doing in our health system practices have to include a sustainable business model. And it is hard to build this on predictable economics. So I'll tell you some percentages around our experience here at Cleveland Clinic. I mean, DIR fees consume 4 to 5% of our operating revenue for our community and specialty pharmacies, 4 to 5%. You know what our payroll consumes? 6 to 7%. So you start to talk about an economic commitment that we didn't really sign on for, that we, was very, very difficult to plan for. And it's getting in the way, frankly, of some of the programming that our patients need and the services that we need. So, you know, DIR fees have just frankly become another way of a gamed system to enter into the marketplace and to take money out really without showing any value to the patient, certainly to any kind of outcomes and certainly to us. The fees have evolved into, you know, the other messy parts, which is you know, kind of this performance type thing. So now we have PBMs who are giving us 60 cents to fill a prescription, telling us to please follow their performance metrics. Thank you. All right. So I'd like to piggyback on some of the things that Don has already said. And before I do that, I'd like to thank ASHP for focusing on this important topic and for allowing me to participate in this important conversation. Some of the most challenging aspects of DIR fees are the lack of transparency, the rapid unpredictable growth and patterns, and constantly changing methodologies used to calculate fees. Regardless of whether the pharmacy is part of a large complex organization, a single hospital system such as UI Health or an independent pharmacies, DR fees are a challenge for all pharmacies that process Medicare Part D prescriptions. 
Information regarding these DRFEs is often embedded into payer contracts. However, there are various obscure terms that are used to describe the fees, and the language is not always easy to understand. It's difficult to find contact information to find more information from the PBMs regarding the fees. But most contracts contain confidentiality clauses, and this is one of our greatest challenges because these confidentiality clauses and non-disclosure agreements prevent us from speaking openly to our peers regarding these fees. And I think just overall, the, the fact that we aren't able to talk openly about DIR fees and the fact that they're so unpredictable is probably one of the greatest concerns. At UI Health, we have seen a threefold increase in DIR fees over the last three years. So the fact that they're continuing to grow is probably one of our greatest concerns. Thank you, Sandra. And thank you, Don. It sounds that there's a transparency issue. There's a financial strain issue. There's a, a pattern here. And the good news, I guess, in all of this is that there is some positive change by CMS on this issue with the recent ruling that addresses some of the concerns that we just talked about and that Don and Sandra shared. Julian, I'll turn it back to you, maybe sharing some of the elements of the ruling that allow for ambiguity or concern from an advocacy standpoint, some of the good and the bad, I guess, from the new regulation that we're seeing. Sure. I mean, I think hearing Dr. Carroll and Dr. Durley talk about challenges their organizations have faced, it really rang true to what we've been pushing back against for years. And I think for a long time, the clearing call to CMS was, look, you need to address the retroactive piece of this. I think the harder part is addressing this whole this, this issue holistically. So um, one of the things that we're really going to be looking at is how this impacts other administrative fees. So this really only impacts directly on negotiated pricing. That's the only term that's changed. But there are still other ways that um, plans can try to get around this to assess fees, and that needs to be addressed as well. And then I think potentially the larger piece of that is the way quality metrics are assessed. As Dr. Carroll and Dr. Durley both said, you know, there's no real way to talk collectively as a group about what you're seeing with your DIR fees. So contracts are very opaque. I've, ASHP does not have access to these contracts. Obviously, we can't look at contracts from across the spectrum. We also, you know, this, they are proprietary information. So it's not something that ASHP can look at, but it's also just not something people can openly share. And I think that makes it very hard to pinpoint exactly how to press CMS to move forward. But one of the areas that it seems like there is some cohesion around is this idea of quality metrics and how quality metrics are being assessed and used in the DIR space. And we had some members go out and actually try to track down the exact quality metrics that they were being assessed on, and then to look at each claim for which the PBM had said they'd flagged it for some sort of quality issue, and then to try to fix it, to actually do this, you know, this was a well-resourced organization that had the staffing and the ability to do this. This is not something that everybody could do. But what they found in in their study was that for many of the claims, the metric that was actually being assessed had nothing to do with the medication that the patient had been dispensed. And in some cases, also found that the patient had the pharmacy tried to do whatever it was that the quality metric demanded, maybe ensure that the patient was taking a statin on a regular basis, would have actually been contraindicated based on the medication that the pharmacy had dispensed to that patient. So it could theoretically if they try to push this pharmacy metric, 
it could have endangered the patient. So I think that's something we are going to raise with CMS, that the way that these quality metrics are being assessed has nothing to do with quality. And I think there's still just a, a huge layer of black box that surrounds PBM practices. And that I think is what we want to drill down into. And until we can kind of crack that fully open, it's going to be very hard to get this completely resolved, unfortunately. Jillian, this is really helpful. Turning it back into the practice piece, we do have now the new regulation that's proposed by CMS and, and some changes that are going to be happening. How does the new ruling affect the financial and business planning for community pharmacies? Because obviously we're switching the business model a little bit or by a lot. <laughs> Sandra, we'll start with you first on this one. Sure. So as has already been stated several times, the final rule does eliminate the retroactive DRR fees, and that's definitely an improvement from the current state. However, the financial and business planning has become further complicated because despite the fact that the rule does not become effective until 2024, we're already starting to see some changes with some of our payer contracts that are reducing uh, the rates. Some plans have explicitly stated that the changes are in anticipation of the implementation of the final rule, but others are not. So we're seeing reimbursement rates already starting to be ratcheted down. So pharmacies have to pay close attention to their financial terms and the constantly changing rates can be difficult to predict because, like I said, things are already in motion. And depending on the size of the organization's Payers may or may not be willing to negotiate the terms of the contract. So the, ne the negotiated price really is not always a negotiation. And some of the uh, terms um, may result in pharmacies losing business because they're not able to accept the terms of the contract. Or as Don stated earlier, some pharmacies have had to close. So we talk about the minimum negotiated price. Well, what is that? Is that going to be an AWP-based formula? Is it going to be wholesale acquisition-based formula? Is it going to be a cost-based formula? We really don't know. Because when you look at actual acquisition costs amongst pharmacies, they vary widely. And it's often based on the size of the pharmacy and the buying power of the group purchasing organization that they participate in. There are many claims reconciliation vendors that offer tools that allow organization to model DIR fees. So as the final rule is implemented, it becomes even more important to closely monitor the fees working with these vendors to try to get a handle on the overall impact on the financial performance of the pharmacy. Don, any more thoughts on this? Just a couple. I think there's an example we have from Ohio a number of years back where we had actually legislation. And it's that if the PBMs were forcing a prescription to be filled for less than your material cost, that you could call them and they would tell you exactly what product was the index product and where you could purchase it. Well, by the time that law got implemented, the contracts had been changed by the PBMs for the Ohio pharmacies. And the way we were paid was different. So all the PBMs said, you know, thanks for appealing your claim, but your contract is different than the terms of that law. So if there's a word of caution here, so the law was never never had the intended effect in spite of it being what I thought at the moment really inspired legislation. But the caution for us on that business planning side is that the details of how the legislation ends up, how the rules end up being made, what happens with the FTC review of PBMs, all this stuff is incredibly germane to the future of how we can manage and operate community pharmacies for our health systems and for our hospitals. So it's definitely a worry. I feel like the one-year delay is even another worry 
because I feel we have buildings full of people who are going to find loopholes in the law, uh, take on extra lobbying efforts to make sure that things that they want to have included in the rule set may be included. So I'm worried about the year delay in, in a very large way. And from past experience, I'm worried that even our best intended legislation can come back and bite us. And then just experientially, we are starting to get contracts that Sandra had referred to. And we're starting to get contracts with severe discounts, effective 1123, not 24 when the rule changes. So we're really on the lookout for the truth, which is 2023 is the year they can implement severely discounted contracts saying, oh, DIR fee structure is changing in 24, but they'll still be able to grab the DIR fees in 23. So certainly a word of caution to all about whoever signs these on your behalf, if it's not you, be very careful about the terms and reviewing them because 2023 may be the last great hurrah for PBMs to give you a severe discount and then take back a lot of your money anyway. And that's, so that's a real concern about, about business planning. Thank you. Tina, can I just, I, I touch on something Dr. Carroll said, because I thought what he said was really important. And that is that every time we go after PBMs for things like that, with things like DIR, with CNS and with FTC, it does give their attorneys ideas. As soon as we start poking in one direction, they start trying to figure out how to kind of slide around whatever sort of barrier we're putting in their place. And I think that is one of the hardest parts about addressing the PBM DIR issues. You've got a very wide adversary in some ways. And I hate to make things sound adversarial, but I don't think anybody thinks this is a situation where you've got a super collaborative, warm and fuzzy relationship. And I think the other thing to note is that, um, as Dr. Carroll noted, you do want to look at your contracts. I wish ASHP could look at everybody's contractual terms and try to figure out how to identify the key areas to look at. But as I said before, because there is no transparency in the system, even for the folks who are actually in these contracts, there's no way for us to do that. But I would suggest to the extent you're seeing really concerning things crop up in your contracts to flag those for ASHP. Obviously not very specific terms, but just areas of concern like the ones that Dr. Carroll outlined, because that we can share with the broader group to make sure that people are aware of potential traps to just be aware of. Great points, everyone on this. And I know that as, as we've been talking about, and it's been alluded to multiple times and mentioned um, throughout this podcast, but I think one question on everyone's mind is that in addition to the changes, we have concerns regarding transparency. And so we discussed the minimum negotiated price being upfront, being important. And we talked about some of the concerns there with what's happening in the implementation and the timing, but performance measure clarity is still not quite there. So what are your thoughts on this, especially as we continue to move forward with the with the new ruling? Don, we'll start with you and then we'll go to Sandra. Sure. First of all, I think we go back to that past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior, right? It wasn't that long ago a huge payer and a huge PBM sued each other for billions of dollars about how rebates were defined. So we're not in any kind of path of relationships full of mutual trust, right? There's defining term issues, there's billions of dollars at stake, and it's it's certainly, it, it doesn't speak necessarily directly to DIR fees, but it speaks to the industry and how they relate to, to some of their stakeholders. So we, we probably spent a lot of time on transparency being, being non-existent and that we need more of that to do it in a legal and appropriate way so that there's communication that can be shared and advocacy that can be shared. 
But I, I will say this, it, it is offensive. Sandra brought this up, that a PBM is going to judge pharmacy practice based on claims data, that someone paying us 50 cents or $1.60 to fill a prescription is talking at a national meeting about how they want to drive pharmacy behavior. And we can set up a bonus so you can earn back more if you meet their expectations. But they don't say that brittle cancer patients sometimes have pauses in therapy and that MS therapy sometimes don't work. And the best thing is to take a pause or take the patient off the therapy. You know, instead, they've developed advocacy and, excuse me, performance measures that, frankly, are driven around what's easy for the PBMs who own pharmacies to succeed at, which is, did we ship stuff out in time that overlaps the date that gives people their meds on time? And we'll call that adherence. Well, we know that folks that run pharmacies like the ones at UIC and Cleveland Clinic don't practice like that. And there's a lot of clinical standardization and art of medicine that we need to account for and really start to account for best practices in pharmacy from a professional perspective, not always the best practices in terms of, did I ship the refill out on time so the patient looks like they're adherent? So the simple metrics, I think, are part of the challenge. I think if there's a burden on us, if I complain about this in a public forum, they might say, well, what should the metrics be? And I think that needs to be work that our organization can do to help better define what performance should be that's appropriate and should be rewarded by the insurers and the PBMs. Thank you, Don. Sandra? So many of the PBM performance metrics are loosely tied to the Medicare star ratings. And while a case can be made for the importance of achieving these performance metrics that are currently in the payer contracts, because if achieved, can play a role in improving health outcomes in illnesses such as diabetes and hypertension, It's very concerning to me that the PBMs don't offer direct payment to pharmacies for providing these services, separate and apart from the revenue that we get from our drug reimbursement. And it's also concerning that even the highest performing pharmacies have to still pay the DIR fee. And while there are incentive clauses built into the contracts, the incentive payments are minuscule compared to the amount that we're being paid or being forced to pay in DIR fees. Uh, Pharmacies need to be paid a fair rate for providing services that improve medication adherence, and this must be paid at a rate proportionate to the amount of time that the pharmacies spend providing these services, rather than uh, based on a metric that's determined by the PBM that has very little to do with the time that's spent to provide that service. Jillian, anything to add on this topic? No, but I think the point about payment is a really important one. I mean, I think this, one of the things that we're really pushing at ASHP is this drive to ensure that value is rewarded. And the incentive side of things just does not match up to the value that pharmacies bring to the table, and it never has. And so I think aside from the fact that we need to have transparent metrics, I do think ASHP has a role to play in helping develop reasonable and valuable quality metrics that are actually meaningful to patient outcomes. I do think there's also a real need to ensure that PBMs are kind of forced to incentivize things appropriately because at at this point, they are very incentivized to assess fees and to pull value out of the system, but doesn't seem to be the same incentive on the positive side of the equation to ensure that they're rewarding really high performers and really great patient care and, and good outcomes. 
Thank you for that. I think we've had a good conversation so far, at least outlining some of the the key issues and and helping bring this to light even further. As we're wrapping up for the day, we have one last question, and that's looking ahead. So what can we expect as advocacy priorities in the horizon? Are there any concerns or issues that we expect will surface in some of this we touched on. Jalen, I'll start with you from kind of the ASHP comment side, and then we'll move more to Sandra and Donald after. I mean, there, we have a lot of different unrelated advocacy priorities, 340B, tops mind right now. But on the DIR side, I think one of our key priorities, what I just mentioned, is pushing for CMS to look at making metrics more transparent to make sure that metrics are being used appropriately and to better incentivize plans and PBMs to reward good outcomes. At this point, that part of the system does not seem to be working very well at all. The other thing is we're really, as Dr. Carroll noted, keeping a close eye on what's happening this year with contracts to make sure that we're in a good place in 2024 to help members move forward. We're keeping an eye on how PBMs might try to game this new system. You know, anytime there is a a change to the system, the players immediately start looking at new workarounds. And that is the nature of the beast, unfortunately, with regulation is that it, it is changing, but it is not, it does not change or respond as quickly as the players in the system can to changes. So that's something we're really keeping an eye on. But we are going to to continue to work on this issue for the foreseeable future. Um, And the other thing I would note is we're also keeping a really close eye on what's going on in part B with quality metrics, because there is a concern, uh, and we've heard this from members over the last five years, that they're starting to see an uptick in some of the fees that are being assessed on the part B side. It's not DIR in the way it is in part D, but there are similarities in the lack of transparency as to how things are assessed and also in some of the quality metrics. And so those are things that we really want to see addressed across the spectrum for Medicare. So just because we've fixed retroactive piece in D, that doesn't mean we have fixed the transparency issues across the Medicare spectrum. And that is going to be the bigger piece of what ASHP will continue to work on. Thank you. Sandra, any thoughts on this closing question? I'm sure. I'll start by applauding ASHP and the other pharmacy organizations for their advocacy efforts in eliminating the retroactive DR fees. So this is indeed an important first step and a change that's needed. However, the true reform is the elimination of the fees altogether. And I think that there's strength in numbers, a proactive, focused, collaborative advocacy approach amongst the various pharmacy organizations is what's needed. I don't think it'll be in our best interest to sit back and wait to see what the PBMs will offer as it relates to DRA fees and payments for services because I believe this will result in even greater financial challenges for pharmacies and even more pharmacy closures. Focusing only on the product reimbursement is an antiquated approach that's not sustainable. Pharmacies have used margins from prescriptions to fund indirectly many services that improve patient outcomes. But pharmacy providers and pharmacy professional organizations must work together to define payment structures that are needed that will allow us to continue to provide these services and be compensated for the services that we provide for the patients rather than just for the products alone. Thank you, Sandra. Don, any closing comments? Pharmacy became the public face of a lot of COVID interventions for our communities. You know, we, we kind of own that and it got tagged to us, which was great. But now the advocacy to expand that role and to be treated fairly 
And I think I've we've touched on a number of these, as has Sandra, as has Jolan. But maybe it's time for the old method of what does a model contract look like? As we advocate for us, maybe it's not just we can't have this, this, or that. Maybe we're saying, here's a model contract that would work. And frankly, it should work for the PBMs, too, because the terms are very explicit, and that way everybody would understand. So I think about model contracts. think about that as part of our advocacy. And I'll go back for my final comment and just and just say a couple things, which is PBMs can't be the group representing us and doing most of the advocacy to our political leaders, talking about pharmacy generally in derogatory terms that they need to manage us. We need to we need to grab that messaging. And then back to the, the, the contracts, it's details, details, details. And I think we need to pull every thread to see what a contract, how it reads, what legislation looks like, how could this be interpreted? How could it get twisted around to not fulfill its intention? So th- those are all the things in terms of advocacy priorities that I think are critical. But if there was one that might be unique, it, it really would be to go back to what does a model contract look like so that we're in more control of may- having a deliverable versus a set of grievances. Great comments by everyone. That is, unfortunately, all the time we have today. I know all of us could talk about this extensively for days, but I want to thank our speakers for joining us today to discuss this uh, this issue. For those listening, if you haven't before, we encourage you to look at ACHP's online resources for community pharmacy practitioners. And of course, a lot of the advocacy initiatives that we've been doing keep you up to date with upcoming regulations, upcoming changes, and then ASHP's advocacy efforts on this front and many more. That is all we have for today. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Community Pharmacy Podcasts, and we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.